tales of horror. As the sleepless hours tick past, brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Season 15, Episode 18 of the No Sleep Podcast. I'm David Cummings, and now it's dark. Welcome back to Season 15, and welcome to 2021. A new year with lots of cool sleepless things ahead. We have many exciting projects to share with you in the coming weeks, including the road to our big Season 15 finale. It's going to be a trippy journey, so make sure you're fully braced. It's good to be back, dear sleepless listeners. We're so glad you're with us. So now, let's begin our journey down this lost highway. In our first tale, we meet a family who are having some relatives over. Getting together with family members can be fun and help strengthen family bonds. But in this tale, shared with us by author Ty Bannerman, the relatives are just a little bit unusual. You see, they've come back from the dead. Performing this tale are Matthew Bradford, Jeff Clement, and Jessica McAvoy. So take the necessary precautions when zombies come around, even if it's for a reunion. I was 12 years old when they came back. We were playing baseball in the field just down the road from the cemetery. The first sign was a vaguely sweet, earthy smell, a bit like weak old roses, that came wafting into our game. One by one, we stopped, turned our faces into the evening light, and looked for the source of the pungent breeze. Squinting, holding our hands to block the glare of the sun, we walked to the fence and saw them. They were pulling themselves out of their graves, the surface of the ground breaking around their bodies as they struggled upward long shadows stretching out from their reaching limbs. We ran, of course, kids scattering in all directions. Julia and I jumped fences and bolted across backyards until we were home, panting in the kitchen, our parents chuckling at our apparent desperation. But after we blurted out what we'd seen, they stared in disbelief. Something about our manner made them realize that this, despite how outrageous it sounded, was beyond the usual childish imagination. After a few questions, Mom had me and Julia sit at the table while Dad jumped into the truck and sputtered off to see what exactly had gotten into our heads. Later, we poked at our pork chops in between excitedly chattering about what we'd seen, and Mom kept looking at the clock and exhaling hard out of her nose. Finally, the truck rolled back into the yard and there was my father's portly body pushing through the back door and shaking his bald head in wonder. You were right. They've come out of the ground. 
but they're not really doing much. They're just pushed up against the gate and kind of swaying there. He told us that other people from the village had driven down to gawk at the bodies until the police showed up and put up a barricade. We spent the night scared, lying in our beds, listening to the sound of Dad in the other room scanning the radio for any news from the outpost. But they were playing their usual classical filler. But by morning, things seemed as peaceful as ever. Dad drove down again, and when he came back, he said other folks were at the cemetery, hanging out in the backs of pickups, on picnic blankets, or just cross-legged in the grass. He took us all down that afternoon, and we chatted with the neighbors. People were noting which of the bodies they knew, calling out names from time to time to try to get the attention of a long-departed relative or a friend. Several of the watchers had brought charcoal grills, and the smell of meat filled the air, mixing with the rotten roses. Over the next few days, the town's gossip mill ran wild with theories about the cause and what might have happened. It's Armageddon, said some. A government experiment, said others. There were stories of the same thing happening in other places, but few specifics. We heard that Sheriff Johnson had tried radioing out for help, but since the collapse, nobody more than a county away would bother coming to the aid of a small-town lawman with a crazy story. On the third morning, the Beaumont militia made the scene, charging in with a small fleet of pickup trucks and standing guard at the cemetery for a while with their semi-autos and camouflage outfits. But once it was clear that the dead didn't plan on storming the gates or anything, and once a call came in on their CB that something similar was happening in their own town, they drove off and, frankly, everybody was glad to see them go. They had mostly just drank beer and glared around, looking for a fight. It was only a matter of time before somebody opened the gate. Nobody knew for sure who finally did it, but rumor held that it was Mary Wallace, widowed only six months before. And the fact was that her poor dead husband still looked pretty good, and whenever she got close to the gate, he would move his lips like he was saying her name. It finally happened on a Wednesday morning, and the three policemen couldn't do anything to stop the crush of dead folks once the gate was gapped open. The next thing we knew, there they were, shuffling down the town streets, moving towards their old houses and knocking slowly on doors waiting to be led inside. Grandpa and Grandma came by our place. Mama wouldn't let them in at first, but when the night settled and the rain started, she finally relented and opened the door. In they came, gray skin, greenish mold, strange sweet smell and all. They stayed and we were happy at first. The scent was oddly pleasant, and you got used to their arrested decay. They sat with us at dinner, never eating but always there and somehow comforting. Grandma's hair was the same as it had always been, and from the back you could hardly tell the difference. Grandpa had never really said much anyway, so his silence was familiar, and soon we were living our lives just as we had before they passed. Sometimes they got in the way, lingering in the hallway or stopped in a doorframe, but you could lead them from room to room and sit them down in an out-of-the-way seat. Eventually, though, They'd rise and shuffle meanderingly into another corner of the house for who knows what reason. Soon, every kid in town was bringing their dead to school for show and tell. The presenter would roll down the list of who their dead had been and when they'd come back, and we'd yawn since they were all pretty much the same stories. Uncle so-and-so who'd run the tractor shop. 
a pawpaw who'd grown alfalfa and liked Humphrey Bogart movies, Sister JC, who'd been a schoolteacher. The part we looked forward to was sitting with the dead at lunch, comparing height and, and weight and state of decay. It got to a point that teachers sent home notes asking parents to please not send dead to school anymore as they'd become a distraction. Uncle Adam arrived after the show-and-tell letters were sent home, his gangly body standing by the porch window on a June evening, scratching at the screen with his remaining hand. He was in worse shape than Grandma and Grandpa, and we kids had barely known him while he was alive. But we let him in anyway. He took up a post in the living room armchair, watching whatever reruns the outpost station was airing. We kids kept away from him. There was a smell of old cigarettes mixed with a sweet earth about him, and if someone changed the channel, he would moan low and angry like a cornered tomcat. In the evenings now, there were always a few dead shuffling by our house, newly emerged from older graves or further away cemeteries, and on their way to whatever houses flickered dimly in their rotted and mummified minds. Many of these were hardly recognizable as people. Missing limbs, naked bone, and tattered flesh was the norm on this new batch. Once, I saw a head being pulled along by a severed arm. The skull's teeth latched onto a tattered ribbon of beef jerky skin that trailed from an exposed bone. The fingers stretched out and dug into the uneven asphalt, and the head scraped behind it. It was agonizingly slow, a mere inch at a time. After watching for a few minutes, I closed the blinds and turned away. Some my parents recognized, dimly remembered from their own childhoods and the yellowed photos in old albums, and some nobody knew. There were always several outside now, and when we stepped out, they'd try to push their way inside. The babies were the worst. You'd open a door not knowing they were there, and hit the tiny bodies with a thwack. A few got in to clutter up the rooms, and were always underfoot. Clouds of ash now hung suspended in my sister's bedroom. They did a little but swirled gently in the morning sunbeams, but they made Julia cough. She moved into my room, spreading her sleeping bag on the floor. You tried to keep most of the dead out, but every day you'd come face to face with a new body. And with all the extra guests, the dinner table was now a crowd of desiccated limbs and flesh at every mealtime. The scent of sweet earth became cloying. I opened my bedroom door to find the body of a long-lost relation I didn't recognize bedded down in my sheets. Dad helped me move her, but she came back and would scrape her fingernails across my closed door all night long. Even though the house was packed, it didn't really get bad until my mother's grandfather arrived. Please, don't let him in. Never let him in. But the corpse of Aunt Hilda had taken to absently turning the doorknob if you didn't push her away. And soon enough, Grandfather Peterson was inside. Whenever my mother laid eyes on him, she crossed her arms enough to keep her insides from spilling out and left the room. It was too much then. My parents talked about doing something, but what could be done? We tried pushing some of them outside, but they'd just linger there until the door was open long enough for them to blunder back in. You could lead them away from the house, but they'd return in a few hours. And besides, more kept arriving, a few every day. We heard that one of the neighbors had, in a fit of rage, taken an axe to one of their dead, then burned and dismembered the remains. But the cloud of ashy smoke only drifted back into their home. Now, it smelled of burning flesh in their living room. 
After hearing this, Mama said, Well, maybe we should just burn the whole house down then. I'm still not sure if she was serious. Every room was now crowded to the point that you had to push dead aside to enter or exit. Uncle Andy moaned in front of the television. Unknown ash covered every surface. Aunt Hilda opened the door to anybody that scratched on the window. Grandfather Peterson became more aggressive and followed my mother from room to room. Sometimes she would turn around and shove him to the ground, but he just got back up again. Tears were constantly welling up in her eyes, and she screamed when the dead blocked her path. But Grandfather Peterson was always there, right behind her. Sometimes his leathery fingers tangled in her hair. We built barricades then, walls of furniture and discarded plywood from the garage. We tried to make the kitchen our sanctuary, even letting Grandma and Grandpa stay at the table. But the press of bodies against the barricades was a constant erosive force. Every mealtime, the furniture wall would tremble. A section would collapse and we'd be overwhelmed by the flood of dead once again. We'd struggle to push them back, soon not even caring that Grandma and Grandpa were caught in the crush. The next day would be the same. Worse, the stress was taking a toll. My parents yelled at each other. I sulked silently in the empty corner and my sister avoided everyone. I felt like a castaway adrift on a sea of bodies, my fellow survivors growing smaller in the distance. One day, my mother and father were pushing a group out the back door. Once outside, Mum grabbed the can of gasoline and started dousing the bodies even as they shuffled back toward the house. Dad pushed them back into a clump even as Mom pulled out a book of matches. But before she could strike, she froze, and I saw why. Grandma and Grandpa were there too, standing beside each other, their hands touching. Dad realized it, then sank to his knees, cradling his head in his hands, moaning in frustrated despair. Mom threw the matches down and stalked back into the house. It was only a day or so before the whole group was back inside. In the end, there was only one choice, really. One morning, a week later, Dad came to my room, weaving his way through the crowd of dead. We're going. He took my hand. We pushed our way down the stairs and into the backyard where a small pile of supplies had been gathered. Dad and I hooked the trailer up to the truck while Mom and Julia went back inside for a few more things. We packed what we could and then said goodbye to the dead we loved pushing our way back in to hug Grandma and Grandpa's passive husks. For just a moment, they looked at us like they understood. Then their faces were blank masks again. When we got into the car, Dad cleared his throat like he was going to say something. But then Grandfather Peterson was at Mom's window, his fingers clumsily stroking the glass, leaving a thin trail of filth on its surface. Mom covered her face. Dad started the car and pulled out of the driveway. He drove slowly around a shuffling body, and then we were headed through town. Everywhere we looked, we saw our neighbors in their own cars, pulling out of their own driveways, ceding their homes to the dead just as we were. The highway was clogged with even more doing the same thing. Dad cursed under his breath but kept driving out. Will there be dead where we're going? He didn't answer for a long moment. Finally, he muttered, Yes but they won't be ours.
If you've ever driven in a big city, you know the real horror story facing you. Finding affordable parking. The search for a place to leave your car can be an arduous task. And in this tale, shared with us by author Sarah K. Rodden, we meet a woman who's been fortunate to find a parking garage for a good price. But as we all know, sometimes you get what you pay for. Performing this tale is Danielle McRae. So maybe you'll consider taking public transit next time instead of looking for cheap parking. I live in Nashville, and the worst thing about it is the parking. Nashville is a city growing faster than it can keep up with or accommodate. That means parking, especially in downtown Nashville. It's getting scarcer and more expensive all the time. I avoid downtown like the plague to keep my spending low. But sometimes, it's inevitable. Tonight, for example... I'm squeezing my tiny hatchback through congested one-way streets, and the throng of tourists is an effort to make it to a birthday celebration for a girl who I'm only friends with because of my best friend, but who I'm just slightly too close to bail on her. She wanted to have an authentic Nashville tourist experience, because having moved here for college, she'd never really been a tourist. Or at least, that's what the Evite said. Regardless of her reasoning, I think it's stupid, and all I want is to be home with Netflix. I got to downtown early, and I'm stubborn enough to drive around as long as it takes to find cheap or free parking. I squeeze down a side street, scanning signs that stand on a sidewalk. You have to be careful, because sometimes the signs say things like free parking in big letters or and for the first hour in tiny print underneath. After that one hour, it ratchets up and they essentially rob you blind while holding your car hostage. I passed several free parking garages and a couple of $5 parking with the caveat on it, doubling after the first hour. I groan, frustration growing, and pull down an alley between two office buildings to cut across to the next major street. And I see it. A sign that says, $5 parking for 12 hours or less. I slam on my brakes, scanning the sign for any hidden caveats. No, it really says $5 to park for up to 12 hours. I have to turn pretty sharply into the garage, but my car squeezes into the narrow entrance. The gate is painted black but the paint is chipping and it's clear this is not a garage that is being well-maintained. It feels weird, given that the alley runs between two office buildings that are eight or more floors each. It doesn't seem to be attached to either building, though. The gate rises when I push the small green button and it spits out a ticket. The garage is clearly all underground and the pavement immediately angles down taking me deeper under the city streets. The pathway curves to the right, and I'm on the first level of parking. The entire floor is filled with cars, which makes sense given the incredible price. I keep driving, 
going down two more levels of completely full lots. It occurs to me just how deep underground I am now, and I feel a small twinge of anxiety in my gut. I'm not really claustrophobic, but thinking about all those layers of dirt and concrete above me make me uncomfortable. I turn the corner, expecting to descend to level four, but instead, I come to a stop. There's a fork in my path. The garage itself splits off in two different directions like an old country road. I have never seen a garage that is more than a square area that winds up or down. But I suppose in a city like Nashville, this could be the only way to build a big enough structure while keeping the costs low. I check my rearview mirror to make sure no one is behind me, and I consider turning around and heading back for the exit. Except, I didn't see an exit when I drove in. Most garages I use in Nashville have their entrance and exit side by side on the first level. But thinking back, there is only the entrance gate that was barely big enough for a standard-sized car. The pit in my stomach grows. I swallow hard, checking my phone. I have two bars, and I have a feeling those are holding on by a thread. My eyes dart between the two paths. I can turn around, drive back to the entrance, get out of my car, and go find someone to open the gate. No, I tell myself. I'm being silly and paranoid. There are no signs to indicate if one path is preferable over the other. So I close my eyes and eeny, meeny, miny, mow it. I choose the left side. I take another moment's pause, checking the rearview mirror again and chewing on my lip in indecision. Now that I'm observing the pavement I drove down, I'm not even sure it's wide enough for me to turn around and head back the other way. So I turn my wheel to the left and head down the small tunnel. The tunnel isn't anything remarkable, just a squared cement passageway with dull lighting mounted at the top of the walls. I emerge from the tunnel and start to see more parking spots available. But there's something wrong. The cars here are old and broken down, like they've been sitting in this parking garage for years, abandoned and left to rust. I swallow against the tightness in my throat, and I think it's for the best to head to the exit and find another place to park. But I haven't seen any exit signs. Most parking garages have signs at the end of each floor that point you towards the exit. I haven't even seen a single sign indicating which way I should go to get out of this damn garage. I crack a window, just enough to get a little bit of air flowing through my car. I was starting to feel hot, and I have my air conditioner on, but feels stale. It's a mistake that I rolled down the window, though. I don't drive more than a dozen feet farther when I hear a sound from somewhere in the concrete structure. It sounds like a car door slamming, which is normal, except I haven't seen a single other human being in this garage. It makes me jump, and I slam on my brakes without really thinking it through. Just a fearful reaction to the noise. I sit there for a minute, looking around and trying to locate the sound. There is no one. Not 
a single other person is on this level or any of the other levels I have driven through. I take a deep breath, closing my eyes and counting back from 10 to help calm my nerves before I start driving again. The level slopes and curves to the right and the lighting gets dimmer and dimmer. Pretty soon, the only thing lighting my path are tiny bare bulbs every six feet hanging from the ceiling and my headlights. The cars get older and more dilapidated as I go on, and I finally stop my car and put it in park right there in the middle of the drive. My hands are shaking as I take my phone off the mount on my dash to check the signal. Zero bars. Shit. I look around, trying to see if there's an exit sign I've just been missing. But there's nothing. But I see movement. From a row of cars sitting against the wall, I see it. Between two cars so rusted and broken down that I can't even tell what color they were supposed to be, a black figure stirs. My window is still cracked. I leave it that way, despite the voice in my head telling me to seal myself into the car so I'll be able to hear any potential threats. The shape moves unevenly and with staggering steps. I hear its noises now. A low, thin moan comes through my window. The walls of the parking garage seem to absorb noise so that sounds aren't even echoing. So by the time I can hear the thing, it's already significantly closer to me. That's when I realize the thing isn't a thing at all. It's human. It's a huddled, crooked man with what looks like a ratty black blanket clutched around him. The closer he gets, the more I can see of him. His skin is pale and papery like he hasn't been in the sun for years. The yellow hue is even more pronounced under the bare bulbs. His eyes are milky like he's starting to lose his sight. But they aren't totally clouded over. He is saying something. His cracked lips form the same word over and over again that I can't hear or make out. I keep my doors locked and roll up the window, speeding off. Nashville has a lot of homeless people, but that wasn't like any homeless man I've ever seen. That was barely human. The shell of someone that has been down here for ages with no adequate light, definitely no sunlight, and no real human contact. I look in my rearview mirror to see if the man, the thing, is following me. I don't see him, but when I shift my gaze back to the path in front of me, I have to slam on my brakes. There's an old, rusted, practically falling apart truck sitting right in the middle of the path, totally blocking my way. Shit. I sit there for a moment, trying to figure out what I can do now. Then... I hear something. I crack my window even less than I did before, and my blood runs cold. The sounds are those of people crying out in the distance. It's just loud enough to seep into my car. My radio turns on on its own. It's just white noise, and the volume cranks all the way up. I slam my hands over my ears instinctively, the white noise jarring all my senses. I drop one hand to the radio button, 
pressing it quickly and repeatedly to try and turn it off. That doesn't work. So I fidget with the volume dial, but nothing happens. If anything, the static seems to increase even more, which shouldn't be possible since the volume is already at the max of 20. I stumble out of my car out of pure panic, tumbling onto the concrete floor hard. My car door hangs open, the white noise continuing to rise. I cover my ears, climbing to my feet and closing the door. It muffles the static enough that I can uncover my ears. Not even my footsteps echo. It's like all reverberation is just swallowed up. I can't say what, but something compels me toward the truck sitting in my path. Slowly, I approach the rusted blue vehicle. My arm hairs prickle. A shiver runs down my spine. I reach out with a shaking hand, slowly slipping my fingers into the handle. The white noise in my car is still roaring, filling my mind. I'm running on pure autopilot as I pull the rusted handle and I feel the lock pop open. The truck door swings open and I fall back in pure horror. The cab is filled with blood and guts and viscera. It seems impossible if this happened recently, yet the blood is wet and dripping and the guts that cover the floor and cracked vinyl seats look fresh enough to be in a butcher shop. I see them. All of them. Forms emerge from between and underneath the vehicles surrounding me. They're all hunched and pale with a skin as thin as paper like the man I saw before. They're all dressed in rags with nearly blinded eyes and joints that seem painful to move. I hear the word they're repeating, like a chant. The word I know now, the man had been saying before. Car. 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 They look and sound desperate. Desperate to get to the one working vehicle in this entire fucking place. I scramble to my feet, rushing to my car and throwing myself inside. I lock the doors and slam the button of my radio again, trying to turn off the white noise. But now I hear actual sounds and static. I hear, I hear screaming, screaming like nothing I've never heard. It's awful, desperate sounds, like like people screaming from hell. I hear the pain and the anguish and the desperation. The screaming gets louder, overtaking the white noise. The people are closing in on my car. There are adults and children, all androgynous in their dirty and degraded states. Their shells, desperate to escape this prison. I throw my car into drive, slamming on the gas and screeching around the truck, clipping a couple of cars that smash my bumper. But I can't stop. I drive fast. The screams get louder the farther into the garage I go, and more and more of the skeletal figures pour out from between and from underneath the cars. The garage just keeps going deeper and deeper, darker and darker. Blood splatters the wall, slick and fresh like the gore inside that truck. The sickening sounds of agony coming from my radio make me dizzy. My head swims and my vision clouds. 
I hear the sounds of metal on metal, screeching as my car slams into something. I don't even have time to register pain before everything goes black. I don't know how long I've been down here. I woke up covered in shards of glass and blood. My car was smashed up against a concrete wall. But despite the horrible damage, I managed to wriggle my way out of the wreck. I used the back seat for refuge as long as I could before the sounds of those things started to get closer. I tried to find my way back to the surface, but it's like a maze. It feels like the walls move when I'm not watching. I'm trying to avoid the others, trying to make my way to the entrance, trying to get out of hell. That's what it feels like anyway. Like maybe I'm in hell? I don't know how long I'll be myself. These others, they were themselves once, and now they are nothing but shadows of humans. Time doesn't make sense here. Sometimes it feels like walking between parking spaces takes me a week, but making it to another level takes a few minutes. The longer I'm here, the more warped my sense of time and space becomes. I'm losing me. If I was ever me to begin with down here. Wait, did you hear that? I think I just heard a car. A car. Imagine what it would be like to retire with a good income. Now imagine being able to do that at a relatively young age. That's happened to Anna, and Anna has moved to Maine to settle down and enjoy life. But as we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Kenneth Cole, the small island she chose to live on off the coast is a unique place, and the residents there have some rather strange traditions. Performing this tale are Aaron Lillis, Mary Murphy, Danielle McRae, Nicole Doolin, and Peter Lewis. So be grateful for your good fortune. Maybe even offer a prayer of thanks. Just be sure to avoid those tiny gods. Did you know that the state of Maine has 3,478 miles of coastline? 51 miles more than California. Pretty impressive, don't you think? Most of that seaside real estate is located on one or another of over 3,000 small islands off the mainland. With hundreds of towns to choose from, I was unlucky enough to pick Northwick for my retirement years. I was not what most people would consider old enough to retire from my career, but I had been blessed with large windfall that would allow me to live out my life without having to work another day. Ha! If only I'd known how short a time that would be. 
I'd have been much less frugal. In such a small town, I knew it would be virtually no time before some neighbor came over to welcome me. The knock on my door came just one day after I had moved the last of my things into my small Cape Cod home. I opened the door to find a frumpy middle-aged woman in an equally frumpy dress waiting on my stoop. She had an impatient look on her face, as if she was put out. She smiled at me. Oh, hello. I came over to welcome you to the neighborhood. It's not often that we see fresh blood around these parts. I felt unnerved at her use of the phrase fresh blood, but I tried to be friendly anyway. Hello, I'm Anna, Anna Lambert. It's lovely of you to stop by, miss... Mrs. Eleanor Sprout. Hello, Eleanor. Oh, may I call you Eleanor? She pursed her lips as if she'd just tasted an unripe lemon. You certainly may not. Okay, then. I opened the door a little further. Do come in, Mrs. Sprout. Please excuse the mess, but I'm sure that you know how it is, moving and all. She shook her head tersely. No, I do not know. I've lived on the island all my life. I was born here, and I expect to die here. Everyone dies here eventually. Boy, I hoped that all my new neighbors were not like Mrs. Sprout. Even one woman like her was more than enough. And to think she had been the neighbor who was kind enough to act as the welcoming committee. I patted the couch cushions to brush off some dust and offered her a seat and a drink. She declined the drink. It was then that I noticed she was holding a snow globe. You know, one of those things that you are occasionally gifted as a child, usually contains a pretty scene or photo surrounded by plastic flakes of white stuff. This one seemed very simple. It had a glass sphere of about three inches in diameter mounted to a simple, round, wooden base that had been stained a dark color. There was a little brass plaque on it, I couldn't see the scene inside because of the way Mrs. Sprout held it cradled like a baby in her lap. She was even stroking it like a baby. We chatted for a bit, mostly about me. Why had I come to her island? How could I afford it? Why didn't I have a husband like other women of my age? Some even more intrusive questions. She had only been there for 15 minutes, but it seemed like hours to me. It was an awkward situation as she obviously didn't warm up to me and I just wanted it to be over. She finally stood up to leave and we made our final goodbyes at the door. As an afterthought, I presumed that the snow globe had been a housewarming gift and pointed to it. Oh, uh, is that for me? From the look on her face, you would think that I had casually asked her if she enjoyed eating babies or something. She grasped the globe even tighter and pulled away, snarling. No, of course not. What sort of presumptuous bitch are you? Wide-eyed, she turned and stalked away, leaving me with my jaw hanging open and eyebrows raised. Boy, that was unexpected. <laughs> what the hell? It took me a bit to compose myself. Confusion, anger, I can't even tell you the other emotions that I was feeling. It took a stiff drink to get me calmed down enough to resume my cleaning. 
Just as I was beginning to forget the odd encounter, another knock came at my door. I groaned, wondering what this neighbor would be like. I tried to put on a smile, and when I opened the door, I found Mrs. Sprout standing on my doorstep once again, this time with her eyes downcast and a sheepish look on her face. Oh, Anna, I'm afraid that I've been quite rude. I thought that you were being presumptuous by assuming that the globe was for you. But now I realize that you're new to town. How could you possibly know? I raised an eyebrow. Know what? That it was mine, of course. Then she leaned in close. You wouldn't, by the way, want one of your own. I assumed that it would be polite to agree. Why, yes, I would like one. It looks beautiful. Although I hadn't really gotten a close look at it. For the first time, she actually looked friendly. Truly friendly. Doe-eyed, even. Oh, honey, I am so glad to hear that. It will change your life. It will save your soul. I can tell that we will be the best of friends. The best of friends? Wow, that was a change of direction. I was not going to argue, though, and begged off, saying that I would look forward to seeing her again soon. She said that, very soon, she'd bring me one of my own, and I'd finally feel complete. I just smiled and waved goodbye. It took a few days, but the other islanders eventually warmed up to me. I suppose that it had something to do with Mrs. Sprout. She seemed to be a gossip and a busybody. I guessed, accurately I suppose, that if she thought of me as the best of friends, as she so poignantly said, then others would follow in her footsteps. There were two other women that I took an interest in, or perhaps they took an interest in me. There was Lucina Broadwell, who did allow me to call her by her first name. Her nickname, actually, Lucy. There was also Tessie Perkins. I had not gotten to Tessie as well as Lucy because she was a bit withdrawn. I wanted to get to know her because, like myself, she was not an original occupant of the island, hailing instead from New Jersey. I sensed that Tessie was not well accepted by the islanders, but I made it a point to stop by her place to introduce myself. We had a discussion over tea one afternoon. We were discussing Mrs. Sprout and Lucy when Tessie shook her head. Stay away from those old biddies. In fact, get out while you still can. Get out? What's that supposed to mean? It means get off this godforsaken island before it's too late. Tessie, I think that it's too late. I just bought a house, just moved all my things here. I'm here to stay. In fact, Mrs. Sprout was just saying something to that effect. We all die here. Odd way to put it, but I imagine that means it's her forever home. I pulled a face. Really, Tessie, it can't be all that bad. It is that bad, Anna. Trust me. You do not want to stay here. A house? Your things? They're not worth your life, are they? My God, girl, I'm beginning to see why they hate you. I put up my hands in a back-off gesture. I don't mean that I hate you, but they might. You're giving their island a bad rap. I know that it's not New Jersey, but still, it has a certain charm about it, doesn't it? 
I can see it's too late. Sounds like they have gotten to you. Go ahead, enjoy your stay while you can. Just don't accept one of those little things they carry around. She had spat out the word things as if it were something horrible. I knew that she meant the snow globes. I had seen people carrying them everywhere. The grocery store, the library, the post office. Weird, yes. Dangerous? How could they be? I thought good and hard about that conversation. At first, I thought that Tessie was half-joking, then just plain old overreacting. Okay, so she obviously hated it here on the island. I could tell from her home that she didn't have the means to move away, or I would have asked her why she didn't leave if it was as bad as she made it out to be. I had promised to stop at Lucy's house for tea the next afternoon, and I found out that the islanders had mutual feelings for Tessie. Lucy left me alone in her little sitting room while she moved about the kitchen of her tiny house. She prepared some tea and a plate of cookies while she spoke to me. You just stay away from that girl, Anna. Mark my words, she is trouble. Why do you say that? I walked slowly around the room, examining some little figurines she had and some pictures and antique-looking frames. She just hasn't even tried to fit in, I suppose. It's not like we haven't tried. You know, I've invited her to church a few times, and she refuses. Maybe she's just not the religious type. Not the... Lucy stuck her head around the corner. Did you say not the religious type? Well, what does that say about her then? I didn't want to offend her, and I tried to make it sound innocuous. I'm not exactly what you would consider holier than thou either, Lucy. <coughs> I could hear Lucy's sputtering cough from the kitchen and imagine the shocked look on her face. I waited for her to come back to the sitting room and tell me to get out of her house, but she did not. She didn't even respond. I continued my tour of the sitting room, looking at her everyday objects to get a better idea of who she was. Then my eyes alighted on an item sitting in a place of glory on her fireplace mantle. I don't know how I had missed it earlier. That is how obvious it was. It was a snow globe. This was the closest I had been to one since coming to the island, and here I was alone with it. I could finally get a good look at what was so special about them. As I approached it, I noticed that it was, for all intents and purposes, empty. Just one tiny object floating in the middle, barely visible. I reached out to take it down from the mantle when Lucy came back into the room. Don't touch that! I jumped, caught in the act, and immediately started apologizing. I'm sorry, I just wanted to get a... Just wanted to what? Steal my relic? Well, no siree, missy. Not today. She put the tea kettle down, no doubt leaving a burn mark on her end table. Then she began ushering me out, chewing me with her hands. I must say that I was pissed at her behavior. It was just a damn snow globe. Well, fine. Mrs. Sprout said she'd bring me one of my own, and you can be sure that you'll be the last to see it. I scowled and repeated her insult. Missy. This instantly had a calming effect on her. Wait. Eleanor said that she'd give you one? I gave her a sideways glance. 
yes. <laughs> One of the lesser gods, no doubt. Eleanor wouldn't give you anything important. She's stingy and... And besides, she does not really know what you are. Heretic. Lesser what? What did you say? A guilty look took over her face. Nothing. Nothing. Just go. Go! She shooed me out the door again. I started noticing them everywhere. I mean everywhere. Now that I was looking for them, I noticed even more. They would be poking out of women's purses. I could see globe-shaped bulges in briefcases, in coat pockets. I kept trying to get close enough to examine one, but I didn't want to seem too nosy. I became aware of how protective people were over them. I even tried to cautiously make a point of using the words lesser god in conversations. I was always greeted by a look of confusion. Then the person would attempt to change the subject or distract my attention. The day finally arrived. Mrs. Sprout had telephoned to say that she had my globe and would be bringing it over. I awaited her arrival with both excitement and trepidation. What would I see when I looked into one of these globes? I sat on my couch with my hands clasped together in my lap and stared at the door, willing Mrs. Sprout to knock. When she finally did, I flew to the door and flung it open. Well, I can tell that someone is happy. She beamed. She held a globe in her hands, which I recognized as hers. At first, I thought that she was going to gift it to me after all. Then I noticed the little bag that hung from her wrist. It looked like a bag from a gift shop, beautiful with alternating stripes of white and pale gold. Gold tissue poked from the top of the bag. I could see that she had wrapped it with great care. She transferred her snow globe to one hand and handed the bag to me. I eagerly accepted the present and looked at her as a child on Christmas. May I open it now? Of course, child. Of course. We had better sit down. We both dropped the couch, facing each other, knees together. I carefully extracted the tissue from the bag and set it aside on the couch. Then I pulled my snow globe from the bag. It was empty. To be more exact, it was not completely empty. The globe itself resembled Mrs. Sprout's, a three-inch sphere on a stained wooden base. It was filled with liquid, what I assumed to be water or glycerin, whatever they put in snow globes, but nothing else, not even any of the fake snow. Wait, there it was. A speck floating in the liquid, barely visible to the naked eye, even smaller than the speck I had seen in Lucy's globe. Also, like Mrs. Sprout's snow globe, this one had a brass plate affixed to the base with two small nails. I read it aloud, or at least attempted to. Mekanoth. It's pronounced Mekanoth, dear. I tried to hide my disappointment, but not very well. Mrs. Sprout seemed concerned. It looked like her feelings were hurt, but she immediately started to apologize. I'm sorry, Anna. I know it's nothing like Chabak here. She gestured toward her globe. But I guarantee that he will bring you boundless joy in the years to come. I forced myself to brighten and smiled. 
I set down the snow globe and grabbed Mrs. Sprout by both hands. I'm sure that I will. Thank you, Mrs. Sprout. Oh, no, darling. Please call me Eleanor. Really? I mean, of course I will. This truly is beautiful. I was just taken by surprise, left speechless. Thank you so much. Of course, Anna. I misinterpreted your reaction. I remember now how awestruck I was when I first saw Chabak. She nodded again toward her globe reverently. You know, like the Japanese greet each other as a sign of respect. Now, I do not expect to see you without him from now on. You must keep him with you at all times. Oh, okay. And I expect to see you in church this Friday. She wagged her finger. Nine o'clock sharp. You know where it is, don't you? I replied in the positive. Surprisingly, I did know where it was. It was the only church in town, and it was obvious in its absurdity. Yes, it resembled a snow globe. In place of a glass sphere, though, there was a polished dome which shined a bright white. I couldn't tell if it was made of concrete or some sort of plastic like fiberglass. The entrance was in what would be the base of a snow globe, and the plaque above the door read, First Church of Northwick. I caught Mrs. Sprout, Eleanor, before she left. Bring the globe, right? <laughs> Nakanoff. Of course. Why would you come to church without him? Friday evening arrived, and feeling a bit silly, I carried my snow globe to the church. Dozens of town residents milled about outside, no doubt waiting for the doors to open. It bordered on ludicrous, seeing all these people respectfully carrying their snow globes. I received many friendly greetings and nods, more than I had ever been given before, most likely because I had my snow globe with me. Once the doors were thrown open, people filed in. I followed, and we climbed a set of spiral stairs, which I deduced took us up into the globe on top of the structure. As people entered the globe, they began placing their individual snow globes into niches in the sides of the structure. Eleanor found me and guided me toward a niche that had already been labeled Mackinoth. I placed the globe in the cubbyhole and stepped back. Then I felt as if I just had to know more. I needed to know what this was all about. It was just too ridiculous. Mrs. Sprout, Eleanor, I I'm sorry. Truly, I am, but... Well, I really don't understand what all of this is about. Why does everyone carry the snow globes? Why is there nothing in them? What are we doing here? First, she gave me a look of slight disappointment, then understanding. The tension dropped out of her shoulders, and she pulled me to the side. She spoke quietly. Dear Anna, these are not snow globes, as you call them. That is a very derogatory term, and the islanders do not like it. It is enough to get you labeled as a heretic. There is something in them. Each one contains a god. A god of a different universe. They were once of ours, but they transcended. Good people, chosen people, became saints and transcended into other universes. They each became gods of their own cosmos. 
You see? Each globe contains a universe, and each universe has one god. I blinked. That's crazy! I spoke a little too loudly. People began looking over at us. Is that what this is all about? You people are nuts! The globes in the walls began to glow. As the volume of my voice intensified, so did the light thrown off by them. I looked around and everyone was staring. Then they started chanting, Heretic! 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 A gentleman stepped forward. I had never met him, but I could tell by the way he was dressed that he was important. A priest of some sort. He put up his hands and shushed the crowd. Not a heretic, my children. She's simply a non-believer. She must be shown. He smiled at me. An understanding smile, like a parent readying to explain to a child why the sky is blue. Come closer, Hana. I didn't understand how he knew my name, but there were a lot of things I didn't understand about this place, about these people. I approached him. He ushered me toward a large snow globe. Sorry, I mean globe. He gestured toward it, bowed in its direction, then pointed. This is Mahobra, the old one. One of the greater gods, one of the first. He reached into his robes and pulled out the most magnificent-looking magnifying glasses I had ever seen. Mahogany handle, gold-plated rim, a crystal lens. It must have been an antique. He placed it near the globe and beckoned to me. Come, Anna, see and believe. I hesitated, then approached the glass. I peered into it and was first astonished, then horrified. Inside, floating in the center of the liquid contained within, was a tiny man. He moved. He looked at me. He saw me. Do you see the great Mahobra? He is the most holy of saints. Do you see how he prays? It is all he does. He gazes out upon his universe and prays. I did see. I did see Mahabra. And I did see how one could mistake his actions for praying. He cast his mournful eyes up at me. He clasped his hands together and shook them. But he was not praying. He was pleading. I didn't know what he wanted, but he seemed to think that I could give it to him. I know now that he wanted to find a way out. In lieu of that, he wanted someone to put an end to his misery. And how long has he... Has Mahabra been around? The Great One has passed from generation to generation. For as long as people have inhabited this island, perhaps longer, it is said that he was brought here from the old country. I didn't know what old country he meant, but it didn't matter anymore. I heard a sound, a loud screaming. 
Then I realized that the screaming was coming from me. People looked at me. The globes began to glow again, brighter, brighter, a blinding light. When I regained consciousness, I could tell that a great deal of time had passed, but I couldn't tell how long. I looked around but saw nothing but soft white light. I heard nothing. I felt nothing. I was weightless. I was startled when the light brightened from one direction. Was it up? Down? I didn't know. But the light was followed by the appearance of a face. An enormous face. The largest face I had ever seen looking at me. Gazing at me with what seemed like boundless love. I am trapped in a snow globe. You know... One of those things that you are occasionally gifted as a child? It usually contains a pretty scene or photo surrounded by plastic flakes of white stuff. Now it contained only me, and it would for a very, very long time. My name is Anna Itral. When dealing with grief, we are told there are five stages to go through. One of them is bargaining. That desire to somehow alter the loss, if only you could be allowed to. And in this tale, shared with us by author Mediogre, we meet a man who is willing to plunge into his subconscious if he could have the chance to find the answers for his lost love. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula and Alexis Bristow. So be careful about what you go looking for. It might be found in your darkest dreams if you consider yourself the Oneeranaut. My mother talks to dead people in her dreams. At least that's what she says. She is hyper-religious, not quite a zealot, but enough for me to take her visions with a grain of salt. I always assumed that this was just her way of grieving. And who knows, maybe that's healthier than bottling it all up like I do. Losing a loved one is always hard. It's even more difficult when said loved one was brutally murdered. I'm referring to my friend Mia. We never dated, though I was madly in love with her. She knew I had feelings for her, but those feelings were not reciprocated. I was okay with staying in the friend zone as long as I could be close to her. I just wanted her to be happy, even if it was in the arms of another man. I am aware of how pathetic I sound, but it was the truth. 
As you could probably guess, Mia never got a chance to find another man. She was savagely killed in her own home. On the night that she died, I dreamed about her. She said that she cared about me and she was no longer in this physical world. She had died and moved on. She wanted me to come to peace with this and move on with my life. I woke up and immediately called her cell. No answer. I drove to her house, only to find cops swarming the place. Police tapes surrounding the vicinity of her entire home. That was five years ago. They never caught her killer. I still dream of her, but these are just glimpses. I only remember little things like her saying, I'm looking out for you. The dreams were always pleasant, but seemed distant and brief. Every moment I dreamt about her felt like the split second before an egg timer goes off. I couldn't help but think back to what my mother would talk about. Maybe we could communicate with the dead in our sleep. I started doing some research and came across a term called oneronautics. An oneronaut is a dream sailor. They are people who can lucidly dream at will. If I could control my dreams then I would be able to investigate the visions I had of Mia. And if it really was Mia, I could get clues to catch her killer. It was a far-fetched idea, but I was manically depressed and had nothing better to do. Sleep was a sweet escape. So I researched ways to lucid dream. The techniques were crazy. Wake up in the middle of the night and then go back to bed keep dream journals, and look for dream cues, even while awake. I even bought a mask that triggered light flashes as soon as I reached REM sleep. This was supposed to help you realize that you were dreaming. With enough practice, not to mention sleeping pills, I got good at it. I managed to have these lucid dreams just about every night. However, no matter how much I searched in the dream world, I never found Mia. Sure, I wasted time, I, I flew like Superman, I had sex with beautiful women, I would be a hero in many great battles. But not once did I come face to face with Mia. One evening, I found a doorway. I guess it was more of a portal. Maybe you could call it a, a two-dimensional tunnel. Whatever it was, I could feel it calling out to me. It looked Vanta black and reminded me of those holes that you saw on Looney Tunes. From the other side of this gateway, I could hear Mia's voice, but I couldn't make out what she was saying. The only word that I could make out was, don't. Damn it. I tried falling back to sleep, but my mind was too busy contemplating what had just happened. Was that Mia's voice I heard? And what was she saying? The next day, I doubled the amount of sleeping pills I was taking and fell asleep as soon as I got back from work. Yet, as much as I tried, I couldn't find that dark mass of a doorway. Sure, I could conjure one up, but it wasn't the same. The portal I had originally seen was like a siren. It sang to me. It wasn't something that my mind just made up on a whim. It cried out for me. It wasn't until one night several weeks later that I found the door again. This time, I wasn't going to hesitate. 
I flew through the portal, which was vastly wider on the inside than the outside. At least, I assumed it was, because everything was pitch black. Scared of getting lost, I stuck with one direction and stayed my course until I saw light. Upon crossing the light's threshold, I found myself back in my bedroom. Did I wake up again? No. I was still floating. Looking back at my bed, I saw my body still asleep. What the fuck is going on? I'd always heard of -of out-of-body experiences, but never had I experienced one until then. I floated out of my bedroom and explored my house as a ghostly entity. I did this until I got a strange tingling feeling, like my arms were falling asleep, only over my entire body. I decided it was time to find my way back to the regular dream world. Back in my room, I saw a similar portal to the one I had taken to get here. It floated near the foot of my bed. Next to the portal stood Mia. I can't stay here for long because my soul has moved on. You are... She was cut off and bodily yanked backwards. Her translucent projection flew directly through my wall and out of sight. I made my way to the window to see where she was going, but there was no sign of her. I went outside to look for her, but I couldn't find her anywhere. Eventually, I decided to make my way back to the portal. This time, when I entered it, it was smaller, and there was no mass void. I just woke up in my bed. There was no floating this time. I was really awake. I googled out-of-body experiences, but didn't find anything about black portals. It was odd. I knew it wasn't just a dream. I checked to make sure how many sleeping pills I could safely take at a time. I took the maximum dosage. Back in the dream world, I searched frantically for the dark portal again. This time, I found it rather quickly. I noticed that once again, it had shrunken. No matter, I would risk anything to find out who killed Mia. I made my way through the portal and headed right back into my bedroom again. This time, the room looked dark and grungy. Mia! Mia, where are you? After what felt like forever, I finally got a reply. The voice came from behind me. You aren't supposed to be here. Mia, it's so good to see you again. You have to leave. I'm not leaving until I find out who killed you. It doesn't matter. I'm dead. You're not. You have to leave now. I can't stay here for too long. Who killed you? I honestly don't know. It was dark. I couldn't see his face. But this place, it's neither for the living nor the dead. You have to go back. Did he have any tattoos? Any physical features I can start with? I don't know. It's almost too late for you. Get out while you still can. At that moment, there was a whooshing sound, and once again, Mia was yanked bodily out of sight. When I turned back to the portal, it was gone. And that's how I got stuck in this spiritual plane of existence. I'll call it purgatory because I don't know what else to call it. I tried laying back down in my body like I've seen people do in movies, but it didn't work. I waited, floating around my house as days went by. 
The phone rang several times, but I couldn't answer it. I couldn't interact with anything in the real world. I never saw Mia again. My mother was the one who discovered my body, all weak from dehydration and malnutrition. The empty vessel was taken to a hospital. No doctor could explain my sudden coma. With nothing better to do, I decided to watch over my mother, as she took my coma the hardest. At night, I could swear that she could see me while she slept, and I tried to lie and say everything would be okay. I told her to just take me off life support, but she couldn't hear me. During the day, I watched her as she went through my personal belongings. I was embarrassed when she found my porn collection. I was mortified when she found my notes on lucid dreaming and contacting Mia. And I was horrified to watch her try to become an Oneronaut herself. In our final tale, we meet a group of sorority sisters having one last adventure before they graduate and go their separate ways. They travel to Austria to experience the countryside and hike the mountains. But in this tale, shared with us by author Darren Carr, the weather takes a turn for the worse and they're forced to take shelter in a cabin with a disturbing secret. Performing this tale are Mary Murphy, Erica Sanderson, Nicole Goodnight, Jessica McAvoy, and Tanya Milozovic. So be wise and make the right decisions if you find yourself confronted by the Lady of the House. When you reach a high enough elevation, even in the most summerest of summers, the premature autumn creeps in as the temperature drops, and you start to wish that the bottles of water in your pack were steaming cups of coffee. The view is gorgeous, and you imagine you wouldn't change a thing, but goosebumps still make their way up and down your limbs, and you just know an extra hoodie could make it all better. That's a sensation I got while climbing up the southeast side of Wildspitze in the middle of July last year. And I definitely wasn't about to bring it up to my hiking mates. If I brought it up to Prima, she'd chide me for being a wimp, after she and I had already made a big deal of roughing it and tackling the elements head on. On the flip side, bringing it up to Corinne would basically mean admitting that the battery-powered electric blanket she brought to stuff inside her insulated sleeping bag might not be overkill after all. You know, I can hear you guys huffing and puffing back there. I'd be happy to hand off my trekking poles if anyone needs a bit of relief. We don't want your walking sticks, cause We're doing perfectly fine with the legs we've got. Yeah, dude. You look just as tired as we do. You can't honestly tell me they're helping. 
Aren't you just tiring your arms out carrying those things? We'll need you at full strength when we build the campsite, you know? Sure. Whatever you need to tell yourselves. The three of us had graduated from the University of Chicago. This trip was our last hurrah, as it were. We met as freshmen in Trinity House and started planning this trip that year. We were the only three freshmen in the house with single rooms, which were structurally stacked on top of each other. Corinne was in 107. I was above her in 207. And Prima was in 307. Or as we called it, the Angel's Roost. The other members of the house had dubbed us the Trinity. Trinity as we were inseparable, and would spend a lot of time in the Angel's Roost. Studying. Divulging our hopes and dreams. Dancing to the heartbreaking hits of Tegan and Sarah. Or just overlooking the quad in quiet and collective contemplation. Corinne's mom had some business connection in Bent, and we were able to stay in one of their apartments completely free for the week leading up to the hike. We decided we'd climb the mountain and camp out on top for the night, so we could watch the sunset on one side and then rise on the other. Then, at the end of the hike, we'd go our separate ways. Freema would make her way back to the UK to start a business with her brother. Corinne would go backpacking through China and Korea before ending up in Japan to teach English. And I would be the only one to make it back home to start my own adventure. In Illinois, it was creeping up to about five in the morning, but on the southwest side of Wielspitze, it was high noon. The sky was bright and blue, and we were a few hours into our hike. There is a fire pit up there, yeah? I won't be digging in the dirt to make one. Oh no? I thought you were going to be at full strength. What have we got to make one? Spoons? Forks? Utensils are for the civilized. We're wild women tonight, remember? I said we were roughing it. No one said anything about being wild. Wait, are you sure? because I emptied our packs back at the lodge. You did what? Tell me you're joking. (laughs) Whoa, you guys. I'm totally kidding. Don't worry. Your 12-pack of granola bars and 4-pound bag of chocolate cranberry trail mix are safe. Don't pull that, Mike. You know there's no source of food up there. Come on, guys. I said it was a joke. Guys. Okay, jeez. No more jokes about the food supply. I would honestly run back down the mountain to get that trail mix alone. I'd hope so. You spent all of last night trying to decide what to put in it. It's very important to be particular about one of the very few things that you're going to be eating for an entire 24 hours. Oh, for sure. When you're out here roughing it. Hey, we're still roughing it. There's no hot water, is there? No electricity, is there? Well, there is a certain living off the elements that's to be expected. Are you joking? 
We're living in a canvas hut for the night. And I saw you pack your phone. Of course I packed my phone. There's no hospital for miles. Do you think I'm going to drag you to the nearest medic if something happens? Well, that's not exactly living off the elements, is it? It's for emergencies. Sorry if I care about your physical well-being. And what do you think people did in emergencies before cell phones? Well, that was a different time. People had all kinds of medical and first aid training back then. Right, so instead of learning first aid, you brought your phone. Typical. Typical? What's that supposed to mean? Did you take an eight-hour first aid class before this? Well, no. But I am helping in other areas. You know, I'll, I'll help pitch the tent and all that. Sure. You're just going to complain the whole time. Uh, guys? I'm entitled to complain if I want. That doesn't mean anything. Uh, it means we're going to have to listen to it. I'm more than willing to do it myself if it means... Oh, are you? Well, I'd obviously rather not. When you start, you can't stop. You sound like a goddamn baby. Guys? Oh, mature? I'm actually months older than you are. Right. That's why you're so crotchety. Louisa, you're rotten! (laughs) (laughs) Guys! Look. Corinne was pointing ahead of the trail, but she didn't really need to point at all. We had found ourselves in the middle of a dense fog that kind of came out of nowhere. We could see a few feet in any direction, but we couldn't see any further. If it weren't for the incline of the mountain, we'd have no sense of direction. What the bloody... It was just clear. Did we make it high enough to get into the clouds? Maybe it's just burn off from this morning. No... I check the weather every ten seconds before we left. It's been clear all day, and it's supposed to stay that way. No fog, no burn-off. And I don't think we're high enough to have reached the clouds. The sky was blue just now, I swear. I took a photo on my phone to send to my mum. Oh, on your phone? It's back at the apartment. I didn't bring it with me, like someone did. We should keep going, yeah? Why wouldn't we? It's just a bit of fog. Well, we can't really see anything, but you're right. I bet it's nothing. If we keep going, we'll probably be out of it in, like, five minutes. It's just a fluke cloud passing by the mountain or something. Sounds fine to me, Prima. Let's keep at it, then. We continued on in silence. It was nothing, right? Just a slight fog up on the mountain. I mean, that's the cool thing about going up the second highest mountain in Austria. You reach a certain point where you're looking down at the clouds instead of up. But before you get there, you have to make it through. But the further we went up the mountain, the denser the clouds got. Every time I thought, this must be the thick of it, my field of vision became tighter and tighter. Prima and Corinne were feeling it too. 
It eventually got to the point where we were walking shoulder to shoulder up the mountain. And as we got higher, the summer air that felt like autumn got colder and sharper. Can we stop for a sec? I've got to put on some gloves or something. Did I even bring gloves? Hey, I have some for each of us. You guys, it's July. Thank God I've got a spare jumper. It's, uh, it's gotta be the elevation. Have we been walking that long? I honestly didn't think we'd be that high up by now. Well, like you both said, we should just keep going. We'll be out of this fog soon, I, I can feel it. Exactly. And when we get past it, the sun will heat us up. It had better. I wasn't built for this. It didn't take too long for our gear to warm us up again, as we moved at a quicker pace up Fieldspitze. I was thankful for the wind, because I knew that it would be moving the fog along. But I eventually noticed that it wasn't really moving along at all. The air was moving, and maybe the fog was rolling, but we weren't seeing any signs of it thinning out. We were silent again, each of us looking for a landmark, a tree, a literal sign, anything to tell us that we were getting closer to the top. Our path wasn't leveling out, which meant that we were still on an incline, but at least our terrain was consistent. But as we got further up, I started to feel a dampness in the small of my back. We had layered ourselves up against the cold, but we had also kept walking speed walking, basically, in hopes that we'd reach the end of the fog that much sooner. And with the exercise mixed with the thick layers on my back, I had started to sweat. The humidity from the dense fog probably wasn't helping, and once I realized what was happening, I started to feel the dampness at my neck, under my arms, and under my hat. I knew that if I took it off, a ton of body heat would escape my head, so I had to keep it on to keep warm. I started noticing something else as well. The air, though it looked thick and damp, started to feel cool and crisp. Breathing in through my nose, I could feel it being pulled into my lungs, as though we had walked into a giant meat freezer. Someone's got the AC on full blast, haven't they? It's just the altitude. Air's a lot thinner up here. The altitude again, is it? Frames were fine. We'll be, we'll be fine. We've just got to get past the fog. This, this just doesn't feel normal, you know? My parents have done this hike before. They told me I should expect the air to get cooler and thinner, but I'm telling you, the sun at the top will make it all worth it. It makes sense, but maybe it's just a bit more than we expected. You said they did this climb like 30 years ago. You guys were the ones who wanted to keep going earlier. All right then. But if we get to the top and we're still in the fog and freezing our asses off, you're sharing that heated blanket. Fuck roughing it. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> we kept walking in the frigid mist. The dampness from sweat was pulling the cold into my body. 
but I remembered a simple trick I'd learned from this presentation in grade school from the Community Emergency Response Team in Chicago. We'd get it at the beginning of every winter. If you want to keep warm, it helps to think warm thoughts. A woman on the search and rescue team would tell us that it was scientifically proven that thinking about warmth and sources of heat helped to increase overall body temperature, even by a few degrees. She told us all to try it, and after a few seconds, the kid at the front of the assembly shouted, I'm sweating. I thought about the fire we were going to start at the top of the mountain. I thought about pulling out the metal pot from Freema's pack and boiling a couple bottles of water to make tea. I thought about the spring break we went to Rio de Janeiro, and the two of them laughed at me for falling asleep by the pool and getting sunburn on the backs of my legs. My eyes were straining to see a few feet ahead. The fog itself had shifted from a gray veil to a pure white mass. Gravel and the odd tuft of grass showed through, but just far enough so we could see where we were stepping. Looking down, I noticed that the ground was changing. First the bits of gravel looked like they'd been rained on, but it wasn't rain. It was snowing. And that's when I realized... Wait, guys. Hold up a second. What is it? I pulled out my phone. I knew I wouldn't have service out here, save for an emergency. But I had screenshots from my maps app of Wildspitze and the route we were taking. Did you guys see the stone tower? I showed them a photo of the nearly 10-foot cairn that would have meant we had hiked up to about a 10,000-foot elevation. Freema cocked her head, looking from the photo to me and back again. Corinne peered at it and opened her mouth to speak, but couldn't get any words out. Should we have seen this? Corinne? I mean, it, it looks familiar, but that could just be from my parents' photos. What is that? We should have passed it by now. Freema's expression was stone cold, save for her wide eyes. She spoke almost too calmly. Maybe it's near here. She didn't even look around. She just stared at me with that don't fucking tell me we're lost look on her face. We should have passed it over two hours ago. Oh. Over two hours ago? According to this map, we should be walking on snow by now. We should be? We have been walking on snow, though. This should all be snow. Besides, it's only supposed to be like 25 degrees. But you can't tell me this doesn't feel more like 10. This is it then, isn't it? You're telling us we're lost. Maybe. I don't know. If I could just get a signal up here. Oh, and I had to leave my bloody phone back at the hut. Of course, I know you brought yours. No bars. Brilliant. The snow had been picking up. The flakes were heavy enough that they could be seen in the fog, and it was accumulating on the ground and on our gear. I could feel the sweat under my jacket get colder, sharper. It was starting to get windy. Okay, um, do we go back? 
We can. But if we haven't been going in the right direction this far, how will we know if we're heading the right direction back down? I don't suppose anybody brought a compass? I have one on my phone, but it needs to be connected to a network for it to work. A compass app needs the internet? It was a free app. I was sure we wouldn't need an actual compass. I just don't want to pass a Breslauer Hütte on the way down and not realize it. What if we keep going up? Will we make it to the summit? We might. Or we might make it to a completely different spot altogether, depending on where we've been going for the past buck knows how long. We haven't got much of a choice then, have we? Either we go up and possibly get more lost, or go down and possibly get more lost. Which way do you think will get us out of this bloody mess? I'm freezing. Wait, do you guys see that? We turned to see what Corinne was looking at. A bit further up the mountain, maybe a couple hundred yards, was a faint impression of what looked to be a cabin. Through the snow and the fog, the structure of it was just a shadow. Then, as if my eyes were adjusting to the darkness of it, I was able to make out details of the cabin bit by bit. It looked big enough to have at least one bedroom, with a couple of windows on the side facing us, and a couple of stairs leading up to the door. The wood was rustic and worn, having probably withstood several mountainside snowstorms in its day, but it was still in one piece. That's an entire house out here on the mountain? It's a cabin. I don't think anybody actually lives there. Guys, can we at least go in and check it out? Go in? You mean to the strange cabin on the side of a mountain? You and Louisa said no matter which way we go, we're going to get even more lost than we are right now. At least if we hold up in there, we can wait out whatever weather this is and, and maybe get warmed up. It wasn't like Corinne to advocate for busting into a strange house but it was right on brand for her to point out the most logical option presented to us. How do we know it's even open? There's only one way to find out. Bloody hell. Getting closer, I could see that the glass on the windows was dusty and thick. It looked like someone had put the whole thing together with materials they just had lying around left over from some other project. The door was solid, probably oak, and looked to be pretty heavy. I noticed a wide chimney spouting from the roof, which despite the cabin only having one story, had a very tall peak. I stepped up to the door. The handle was simple, and had a steel thumb latch. I looked back to see Freema and Corinne standing behind me. Is anyone in there? I don't think so. Is it locked? I pushed open the heavy door, the hinges groaning loud and slowly, not used to the movement. I looked back again. And saw that we were all equally surprised. Surprised that it was unlocked. 
but also perhaps a bit surprised that we were going through with this in the first place. None of us said anything. I stepped into the cabin, snow swirling in behind me. The white from the fog illuminated in through the windows, and for the first time in at least an hour, I could clearly see more than three feet in front of me. The kitchen was to the right, with a table and chairs and a bench, and a few feet of counter space along the walls, ending at a basin. To the left, there was a long sofa with a floral paisley pattern sitting in front of a large hearth with a small pile of charred wood in the center. Above the fireplace, there was a painting of a young girl, about 15 or 16, with lots of colorful decorative flowers in her hair tying it up and leaving curls falling down the sides. She had big dark eyes and tight lips, almost at a smirk. She was wearing a pearl necklace with a shiny floral pendant in the middle and a dress that started at the shoulders with a red bodice and a bright yellow shawl. This isn't quite what I thought roughing it would look like, but it'll do. Dreams. It's not like we're going to stay here the whole night. Aren't we? Why would we? It's only about three o'clock and this fog could leave at any time. We don't even know where we are, Lou. We don't know if we've missed that landmarker or if we've passed it without realising. And besides, it's snowing and we're bloody freezing. As much as I didn't want to, I had to agree. Sure, we could have gone back down, walked until we saw civilization, or at least got a cell signal, and gotten back to the Breslauerhutte from there. But we'd been walking in the cold for a couple of hours, and it would do a lot of good to take a bit of time to warm up and dry off. When Corinne closed the door, I could already feel myself warming up. We dropped our packs and started to switch out our gear for warmer, drier clothes we had stored for the next morning. In between outfits, my entire body was sharp and stiff, the cold air making its way through me. It was satisfyingly soothed, when I pulled on a long-sleeved t-shirt and flannel pajama pants, followed by a super-thick pair of insulated socks. Corinne dressed herself in a head-to-toe flannel, and Prima wore a giant onesie with a pug face on the hood. We dragged the bench out from underneath the dining table and draped most of our damp clothes on it. Our jackets and vests went onto the chairs. We made our way to the sofa and sat down in unison, it creaked, surprised to have someone on it. We had stopped talking and stopped moving, and could hear the cabin shifting from the wind outside. I glanced over to the window and couldn't discern much through the bright fog, but I could see that snow had built up on the windows. Corinne had followed my gaze. Should we start a fire? I looked around. I noticed a pile of dry wood stacked under a window at the back of the cabin. God, yes, I'll get the lighter. With a great deal of effort on our part, we all stood back up. Prima went back to her pack to dig out the barbecue lighter and bundle of kindling she packed for the campfire we were going to light at the top of the mountain. Corinne went in search for some paper we could light, 
and I picked up a few logs of wood to arrange on the hearth. Honestly, I've been thinking about fire for hours. This is some poetic justice shit. I mean, kinda. Except we never really reached the top of the mountain. Lou, in your heart of hearts, wouldn't you rather be indoors anyway, rather than living off the elements? You really gave up on the idea of roughing it, didn't you? That's a fantastic idea, in theory. But if I'm honest, after experiencing that Christmas in July bullshit, I'd rather spend our night on this mountain with a roof over our heads. That's fair. I guess I was just excited about the whole sunset-sunrise thing. I figured it would be an experience we could all share, you know? Before I go back home, and the two of you go on living your lives without me. Oh, Lou, I'm sad too. We'll still be able to video chat. Corinne too, when she's not got dodgy internet. Maybe we can venture out and see the sunset in a bit, when it's calmer. And then if it's all the same, let's just skip the camp out and sleep here. <laughs> Sounds good. We'll wait until our stuff is dry first. We should run it by... What the hell? Course. You alright? Well, guys, come in here, please. We leapt up from the fireplace and followed the sound of Corinne's voice. We went through a doorway from the main room and down a short hallway, where a door was open at the end to the left. When we walked in, Corinne was in the middle of the room, illuminated by one small window. There was nothing on the floor, but each wall was nearly filled, top to bottom, with portraits of young women, similar to the one in the main room. They were all draped in brightly colored fabric and pearl jewelry. Each of the subjects had stone-cold expressions and bright, sharp eyes. Bloody hell. Pretty close. Who does this? Someone with a lot of time on their hands. And money. The posh levels on these things are absurd. Whoa, Corinne. Check it out. What? I pointed to a painting next to the doorway. It was uncanny. Not because a model had her face, but she had lots of her features. The same green eyes. The same thick brown hair. The same neutral resting pout that we'd tease her for all the time. She had a fuchsia dress and a necklace with three bright white pearls. Whoa, who is that? What do you mean? Oh, come on. It's obvious. Look at her. She looks the same as the others. She doesn't stand out to you, like at all. Not really, should she? What am I missing here? Oh my god, stand next to it, please. What? Why? Cause, please. Prima pulled Corinne over to the wall and stood her next to the painting while I pulled out my phone. Holy shit. I'm posting this as soon as I get bars. Seriously? You think I look like her? Shush! Just let her take the picture. Yeah, you gotta stand still. Okay, don't smile. Neutral expression. 
Ready? Okay. Okay. Three, two, one. Ah, oh, damn. It was blurry. There was a bright white light over Corinne in the painting, and it looked like they were both in motion. I figured I was shaky, or the capture didn't occur until after the click of the camera. I opened the camera back up to turn off the flash, but it was already off. Try again. You guys, I'm cold. Let's just go start the fire. Okay, stay still this time. I am still. Three, two, one. The new photo had the same problem. Oh, here, let me try. I gave Freema my phone and stepped out of her way. Corinne was looking slightly annoyed, which was only making her look like the portrait more. Okay, ready? Okay. All right, say, creepy abandoned cabin. Cheese. Okay, fire time. Corinne went back out to the main room, and Freema and I checked out the third photo. To our disappointment, it had the same bright blur. Oh, that shit. There must be something wrong with the lens. Could it have cold damage? Is that possible? Not sure, mate. You're asking the wrong woman. Freema gave my phone back, and we went into the main room where Corinne was rummaging through drawers and cupboards, still looking for paper to light the fire. She opened a drawer on a side table and found an old leather-bound book with a dusty bottle of ink and a bare quill. Hey, is that a diary? Corinne pulled it out. If I didn't know any better, I would have sworn the spine creaked open. She scanned the pages, flipping through. It's full of writing. Let's see. Prima and I walked over to look over either of Corinne's shoulders to check out the book. It was definitely full of handwriting, but it was very hard to make out. It's... In German. German? How did you get that? It's an old form of German handwriting called Sutterling. I studied it in calligraphy class. When did you take a calligraphy class? Second year. It was an 8 a.m. Monday class. (laughs) Explains why I've never heard of it. Wait, so you can read it? Well, not really. (laughs) First of all, I don't speak German. Okay, fair. It's easy to find a legend online, but of course... No No bars. Do you think it's important? I don't know. It just looks like some journal. The ink in the drawer looks like it hasn't been opened in, like, a a century. Let's just use a page of it to start the fire. Corinne flipped through the journal. Every single page was full, top to bottom, of writing... When she got to the last page, the writing looked like it could continue, but there were pages after that which had been torn out. See? Someone else had the same idea. Corinne closed the book and handed it to Prima. 
Be my guest. Prima took the book over to the hearth and sat down to arrange the kindling. Corinne and I gave each other a look. I shrugged. I sat down on the couch, anticipating the heat from the fire. I imagined how quickly the wood would catch, since it had been sitting in the cabin for God knows how long and was bone dry. In that moment, I appreciated the shelter of the cabin. I appreciated the hearth and this ageless journal of script too old to be relevant. But the fact that it existed as a paper source around meant that we could get warmer that much quicker. We could dry out our gear and hopefully get back outside to see the sunset and plan a course back to salvation the next day. I was also sad. It hit me again that this would be our last adventure for the foreseeable future. Sure, I was excited to get back to Illinois to start the job search and to get my post-grad life together. But these girls were a huge part of my personal growth for the past four years, and it would be hard to go on without them. After fidgeting with the stack of wood, making some sort of pyramid that I can only imagine she learned from watching Bear Grylls, Prima was finally ready to get the fire going. I glanced over at the two windows at the front of the cabin, hoping to be able to see something, anything, through the sheet of white fog. I could only see that the snow had built up about an inch at the bottom of the window, but everything else was the exact same. Then I glanced over at Corinne. She was looking a bit... different. She watched Primo like a hawk, desperately anticipating the start of the fire. It could have been the light from the windows, but her skin seemed to have lost a good deal of its pigment. Her breathing seemed harsh and shaky. I'd never seen her like this before. Was she hypothermic? Cor, are you okay? She turned her head to look at me. Her eyes were dull and harsh at the same time. The veins on her face becoming visible, turning a dark purple. Finally. Oh, hell yes. Prima hadn't seen her. She opened the journal and flipped to the back page. She ripped it out in a swift motion. And in that instant, Corinne looked like she might cry. Prima clicked the lighter on, lit the corner of the page, and placed it into the fire. The dry logs burst into the tallest, brightest flames I had ever seen. I lunged forward to pull Freema away from the hearth, and we both fell backward onto the dusty cabin rock. The windows went dark, the white light replaced with a black abyss. The snow, however, was piling on faster than ever. Corinne was laughing a laugh I had never heard come out of anyone. She stood next to the fire, stretching her hands out to it. The walls of the cabin groaned and shifted loudly. I looked up. 
and realized they weren't just being affected by the wind outside. They were moving, like a creaky conveyor belt along its track, wrapping all around us. Within seconds, the windows and the front door disappeared down the hallway, at the same time as the portraits from the other room came sliding in on the other side. They moved around the room, cracking and repairing themselves as they bent at the corners. Then I started hearing whispers. Voices of women coming from all over. They were unintelligible. They all sounded like they spoke in different languages. They were coming from the walls. No, they were coming from the portraits. My gaze followed them around the room. Back to the hearth where Corinne was standing. But she wasn't alone anymore. A young girl, about 12 or 13, was standing next to her. They were both worn and pale, but Corinne looked calm and serene. Almost like she wanted to cry tears of joy. While the girl was stern, breathing heavily. Cause? What's going on? Thank you, Rima. Corinne looked over at the portrait we had been looking at earlier. The portrait of the woman in fuchsia who looked like her. She moved toward it, outstretching her hand. She touched the portrait's face. The woman in fuchsia began to move. The oil strokes making up her face became softer, dissolving into a more lifelike image. And then, she emerged from the painting, her full body coming into view, coming out of the wall below. She was beautiful, radiating a comfort that put me at ease, if only for a moment. I came back, Margaret. The voices from the portraits hushed. This one spoke back. I never wanted that, Corinne. You were supposed to leave and never come back. She brought me back. I couldn't go home and face Mom and Dad. I needed to be back here with you. But what about what you're doing to them? The woman from the painting looked at us. Corinne looked down for a moment, and then looked over at us as well. I'm sorry. It was her. I I didn't want to. I've been getting weaker and weaker. She recruited you. For what? What's happening here? Before she could answer me, a look of terror came over Corinne's face. She looked back at the woman. Margaret, I'm... It's okay, okay, Corinne. You weren't meant to stay. Corinne threw her arms around the woman, holding tight. As they embraced, I noticed that Corinne was beginning to match her. She started to glow slightly, and then to become translucent. She was disappearing. I love you, sis. I love you, too. The woman kissed Corinne on the forehead, and then she was gone. I didn't know what to do, or how to react. 
Corinna brought us here to what? To die? To be sacrificed to some demon child? What the bloody hell just happened? A few few years years ago, ago, when I was graduating graduating college, my best best friend, friend, Brooke, Corinna and I to Austria for a skiing trip. trip. We started started at Wildspitze and got lost in a blizzard. We came across this cabin cabin and used it to escape the snow. snow. Just like like Freema, I pulled a page from the journal in the drawer to start a fire. That book. The woman looked at the diary, which had ended up next to Freema on the rock. She became stern. It's some sort of spell. It activates when a page is put. It releases her. She looked at the young girl who still hadn't said or done anything. I hadn't noticed how disheveled she was. Her hair was stringy and dirty. She looked back at Margaret out of the corner of her dark, sunken eyes. The woman gestured to the portrait just above hers on the wall. The woman in it had jet black hair and a red shawl. She was my friend's cousin. The same thing that happened to me happened to her. It happened to each of us in these paintings. It's been happening for nearly three centuries. Centuries? What have I done? What's going to happen now? The woman looked directly at us. She became sad. You're going to continue the cycle. Prima and I looked at each other in terror. And when we looked back up... Corinne's sister was gone. She was back in her portrait. The only person left standing at the front of the room was a young girl. The only sound in the room was her breathing. She was fading away too. But with her it was different. She wasn't glowing with warmth like Corinne and her sister. She was corporeal and cold. She was frail and shuddering. She was scared. After a moment, the voices from the portraits started up again. This time, they were loud. They shot through the room like cannons directed at the girl at the front. The fear in her eyes began to grow. She hugged herself tight, trying to warm herself up. Despite standing directly beside the blazing fire, her eyes closed, her body clenched, her face contorted almost to a scream. And just when I thought she was going to let one out, she threw up her hands. And when she did, the voices stopped. The silence was piercing. I couldn't even hear my own heartbeat. The girl opened her eyes. The fear in them was gone, and they were soft. She took a deep breath, getting ready to speak for the first time. When she did, she spoke in what I could only assume was German. And when she did, the portraits erupted again. But this time, what they were saying was clear. They were all speaking in English. They were translating. Thank you for coming here today. That host for a week. That host? 
What kind of bloody demon are you? I am a demon. When I was young, I was taken captive by the man who built this house. He was big and scary. He wanted to paint me. He kept me for weeks, and in portrait after portrait. One day there was a blizzard, and he left me here for food and supplies. But he never came back. So, you died here? I poured my soul into a blank book he had bought for sketches. I wrote a spell I had learned from my aunt. Two sisters came upon the house much like you did. One of the sisters I was able to inhabit to continue living, and the other was kept here. She pointed to the portrait behind the hearth. So you are a bloody demon! No! No, I'm not a demon! I'm a person! Just like you! Trying to live! But why? The world is different now. Everything you knew is gone. I continue to learn from the world. I've seen more than I could have ever seen before I was taken. I'm happy living this way. I'm not finished with this world. And you're going to show me more. And you. The young girl pointed at Prima. You're staying with my house. Like hell I am, you fucking nutter! Prima leapt up from the floor and ran over to the wall where the door should have been. She began pulling at the frames of the portraits, trying to tear them down. They weren't moving. Voices from the portraits began speaking on their own again, even louder than they had before. It was hard to tell if they were yelling in favor or against Prima, but she wasn't listening to them. I got up and ran over to help her. I pulled at the frames and even tried clawing at the portraits themselves but nothing happened. I ran over to the corner of the room where Corinne's walking sticks had been knocked over by the moving walls. I grabbed one and started to swing. But still, the portraits were unaffected. Prima had the same idea. We both swung and swung. After a few moments, I felt something land on my shoulder. It was a wood chip. I scanned the portraits to see which wooden frame had been affected, but found no damage. Then I saw it. It wasn't in a portrait or any of the frames. Hit between the paintings! Hit the wall! Got it! We started chipping away at the wall behind the portraits. Wood chips were flying through the air, and we were slowly getting through. We swung at the same spot, alternating, exposing the wood underneath. We swung away for a few seconds before I realized that Prima had stopped and I was the only one swinging. I looked over and saw that she had dropped the pole and was standing straight and stiff. We had a sharp fear in her eyes. The girl had a hand held out toward Prima. Prima rose into the air. I grabbed for her, screaming. 
She tried to scream back, but it was muffled. Her jaw was locked shut. I tried to get a grip around one of her arms, but she was being pulled away. My feet felt like they were super glued to the floor. I almost fell over reaching for her. When she was out of reach, Rima hung suspended. A cloud of smoke from the fire came forward and wrapped itself around her, growing thicker and thicker. Prima coughed and cried, but I couldn't move. The voices from the portraits were booming. It felt like they were with me, pleading for Prima to be free. A few moments went by and the smoke started clearing. Prima hung in midair, dazed. The smoke had changed her. Not only was she unresponsive, but her wardrobe was completely different. She was no longer wearing the pub pajamas she had changed into just minutes before. Now she was in a long dress with a bright yellow shawl wrapped around her shoulders. She was dressed like the women in the portraits. She began to move again. The young girl was pulling her toward the wall at the far end of the room, toward the fire. The portraits and I screamed for her to stop. Stop! But she refused to acknowledge us. Prima floated right through the fire against the wall, and then it swallowed her up. The roar of the fire began to dim as the flames gradually got shorter and shorter. Once they lowered enough, I could see that there was a new portrait replacing the one from before. It was of Prima. Prima! My body suddenly became free. I ran toward the wall. I reached over the hearth, over the flames, trying to pull my friend's likeness from the wall. Just like the others... It was stuck in place. The portraits went silent again. I spun around. I hadn't heard her move. But somehow, the girl had gotten closer to me. Her face was pale with dark veins. Like Corinne's was before she disappeared. Her eyes had a milky blue glaze over them. But they were so piercing and direct at the same time. She spoke to me in German again, translated by the portraits. You can help me. Show me the world. Stay the fuck away from me! I bent down and picked up the first flaming log I could find, and I hurled it at the girl before heading down the hallway. I was heading for a door. Any door. The main door had to be around somewhere. The last I'd seen it, it went down this way. The voices from the paintings were getting louder. They were getting closer. I might have been in my head, but through the noise and the foreign tongues, I could have sworn they were mentioning my name. I got to the room at the end of the hall, but I couldn't see anything. It was pitch black. I felt around along the walls, but all I could feel were the ridges and designs on the portrait frames. I could smell the smoke from the fire in the other room. I turned back to the doorway, but could only see illumination from the flames on the wall in the hallway. 
I reached into the right pocket of my pajama pants and found my phone. I pressed the home key to illuminate the screen. I had 14% battery. Are you fucking kidding me? I turned on flashlight mode, but dimmed it a bit as soon as I saw the battery go down to 13%. I scanned around the room for the front door. It wasn't there. Honestly, it could have been in another dimension for all I knew. When you're dealing with a mountain cabin haunted by a justly angry Austrian preteen, logic goes out the window. And then I saw it. The window from earlier. It hadn't shifted with the rest of the walls. But I didn't stop to question it. It was hard to believe I had just been in there, with the dim light from the fog shining through it to illuminate the room. It had only been minutes, but it felt like forever ago. It was in the center, but high enough up the wall that I could just reach the bottom pane. I couldn't get a grip on it, but I remembered the sturdiness of the portraits on the wall. It looked just big enough for me to get through. I set my phone up on the window ledge, with the flashlight pointed up so it illuminated the room. The portrait frames next to one another just below the window were thick enough that I could get a grip on them. My hands were clammy, and I didn't have any climbing chalk, so I wiped them on my pants before making my move. I also slipped off my fuzzy socks to do the same with my feet and slipped them into my pockets for when I landed outside in the snow. It must have been adrenaline or something. But my grip was strong. I locked the tips of my fingers where the ridges of the wall made the smoothness of the frames. I brought my left foot up to the bottom of the frame closest to the floor. Picking myself up, I could see the snow had piled up on the outside of the window. I could feel the cold air coming through on my face. I never appreciated cold air so much. I brought my right foot up to another portrait frame and lifted myself up so I could lean my forearms on the ledge of the window. There was no latch or hinge, so I knew I'd have to break it open to get out. I knew the cold air coming through meant there was a crack or a gap somewhere, making the whole thing vulnerable. I grabbed my phone and started swinging at the glass with the corner. I hit it a few times, and nothing. I kept swinging, harder and harder knowing that at some point it would have to give. I held strong with my left elbow at the corner of the window while my right arm did all the work. The portrait voices were getting even louder. I could hear the ones in the room with me, and the ones from the other room had followed me in. I could feel the sound vibrating in the wall through the frames I was using to keep myself up. I had been swinging for what felt like an eternity. When I felt the voices get so loud and so close... That one Louisa, called my Louisa. name. Louisa! 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 And it dug Louisa, into both of my ears, smashing against my eardrums. I brought both of my hands up to my ears, losing the grip I had on the window ledge, and immediately fell back with a loud thud onto the floor. The portraits kept screaming at me. They got so loud, I couldn't think. It felt like they were bashing my brain in with every syllable, every consonant. I clutched the sides of my head and slowly got to my feet. But the voices fought me with every shift. 
I thought for sure that my ears were bleeding. But I didn't want to take my hands away from them long enough to check. The light from my phone was still illuminating the portrait room. But it had come down with me when I fell from the ledge. I turned around, scanning the floor for it. It was a few feet behind me, about halfway to the doorway. And so was she. The young girl stood there, over the light of my phone. Her screams drowned out by the voices from the paintings. Or maybe she was among them. I couldn't tell. But I could tell she was angry. Her face was contorted. Her veins had gotten darker, almost black. I wanted to respond. I wanted to yell back at her, to tell her to go to hell, or maybe even try to calm her down. But I couldn't get anything out. And then, as if launched by a catapult, she lunged at me, her arms outstretched, soaring over my shoulders, felt like arctic air blowing past my ears. Her face, loud and angry, flew up to meet mine. She knocked me back, but before I made impact with the floor, everything cut away and I blacked out. I was grateful for the quiet. My ears rung out for a brief moment, but quickly recovered. I was laying in a dark silence at, for the first time since starting the hike in Austria, or maybe the first time since leaving Illinois, made me feel safe. I was comfortable. I was warm. I took a deep breath and opened my eyes. Sunlight poured into the main room of the cabin. I was on the sofa in front of the hearth, which was all but snuffed out from a recent fire. I sat up and glanced around at the windows. There was about an inch of snow at the bottom of the panes, and the sky was a perfect warm blue. I felt rested and rejuvenated. I brought my cozy, socked feet down to the floor and stood up to stretch. It was warm and satisfying, especially once my joints cracked to life. I must have been sleeping like a log. I walked over to the front window to get a better view. The blue sky soared on forever. The view down the mountain trail was stunning, with snow covering most of what I could see but hinted of a lush green landscape in the distance. I walked to the back of the cabin to check out the other window. We hadn't made it to the top, barely even close, and there would be some glaciers to climb up. But I was ready to get back to civilization. I went over to where our gear had been hanging and was happy to find it had completely dried out. I changed into mine, eating a bit of the trail mix from Freema's pack as I went. When I was mostly ready, I started brushing the knots out of my hair. The sleep on the sofa was amazing, but my hair did not take too kindly to it. I walked around as I brushed, 
glancing out the windows, thinking about what I might do for the rest of the day, when I realized I didn't have my phone on me. I walked down the hallway and hung a left at the end, and found it, face down on the floor in the middle of the portrait room. I knelt down to pick it up, and noticed that the screen was cracked at one of the corners, and the battery was dead. <laughs> wonderful. I slipped it into my pocket and turned to leave. When I saw her next to the door, Freema's portrait was stunning. It somehow captured all of the beauty and vibrance of her personality in a classic style not known for such things. I was glad that she was in the company of the other women on the wall while I'd be away. I went back out to the main room, heading right for Corinne's pack. Sure enough, one of the many pockets of her bag was dedicated to holding portable cell phone chargers. There were about six of them, more than enough to keep me charged before getting back to the Breslauer Hütte, where I could plug everything into actual outlets. I plugged one of the chargers into my phone, waited for a moment for the screen to read 1%, and then booted it up. I went back to the packs to consolidate some of the stuff I'd be taking with me. I ended up putting everything I needed, my spare clothes, extra food, fire-starting equipment, into Corinne's pack. Her seemed to be the most prepared for the trip back. I had figured as much. I went back to my phone. The flashlight was still on from the night before. I picked it up to turn it off and found that I had dozens of missed notifications. There were a few messages from my mom, wondering how I was doing, if I was eating, where I was sleeping, typical mom stuff. <laughs> I had to laugh. I responded to her that I was doing fine and that I didn't get to see the sunset or rise but that we found a cute little cabin to escape some nasty and unexpected weather. I made sure to add a smiley face to put her at ease. As one Corinne's pack onto my back and grabbed the other two. I took them to the corner at the back of the cabin. I found a few loose floorboards and pulled them up. I looked at all the packs that were stuffed in there from previous trips to the cabin and wondered which had belonged to Corinne and her sister. I stuffed my and Prima's packs in before replacing the floorboards. I figured I'd have to come back at some point before I found the next two and do something with these bags. <laughs> I laughed. Corinne had probably thought the same thing. I went back down into the hallway, into the painting room. I wanted to say goodbye to Freema again. Her and Corinne's friendship had meant the world to me. We caught each other through so many trials and tribulations, all the bad decisions the breakups, the all-night cram sessions, and paper-writing marathons. I would have dropped out a long time ago if it hadn't been for the two of them. I looked to the left of Freema's portrait 
and saw Corinne's sister. I remembered how Corinne had mentioned a sister in passing a few times. I regretted not having asked about her much before this trip. If they had come all this way together for an adventure of their own, they must have been very close. I hoped that she was proud of who Corinne had become. I kissed my hand and touched each of their frames before leaving the room. I was heading for the door when I saw the young girl's diary next to the hearth. I remembered looking at it the night before. Freema was so determined to burn its pages, not knowing what would happen. She didn't know it would curse her to be a part of the cabin forever, in that room down the hallway, stuck in that painting like the others. I thought about what I had to do, and what kinds of people I'd have to bring back to do it all again. A wave of panic washed over me. I didn't want to do that again. I didn't want to have to put more people through what we went through. I slipped out of Corinne's pack and zipped open the side pocket. I pulled out the barbecue lighter. I picked up the book and held one in each hand. This could only go on as long as this cursed book was around. Sure, I'd be pulled to a painting, but I'd bring her down with me. I'd end the cycle of horror that that little girl had been putting women through for years. I clicked the spark on the lighter. But I couldn't do it. Something about that little girl's story struck a chord with me. The pain she went through, and the sadness and hopelessness she experienced in her life, made her go through so much just to ensure she'd be free. Corinne brought her to me and to Freema, and we gave her so much love over the past few years. One day, the book would be empty. Someone would light the last page and end the cycle. But who was I to stop it all now? The least I could do would be to let her live it out through me and then the next woman and the woman after that. I can see as a in the I put away the lighter and put the book back in the drawer of the side table. I picked up Corinne's pack again and headed for the door. I stopped to take one last look around. I hadn't been here long, but I could feel the warmth and magic of the cabin. I was grateful for the spirit of the young lady who lived here, who had given me a purpose. I couldn't wait to take her to Illinois, or anywhere else, for that matter, to show her the beauty of the world she wanted so badly to experience. I smiled, feeling peaceful once again. I imagined that when my time came, 
I'd bring two new and beautiful friends up Dielspitze. And through the wind and snow, we'd bring her back home. Thank you for joining us on our journey down the Lost Highway. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and for being a supportive Season Pass member. As the darkness fades, it feels like you're going to dream This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media 